Open your Bibles, please, to Matthew 28, 18. All good sermons begin there. This will be a topical sermon. The Lord has interrupted my normal preaching schedule in His providence. From time to time, that happens. And I feel much like the Apostle Paul at the Athenian Square when the Spirit was provoked within him. And that's a lowercase s, it's not the Holy Spirit, but I trust the Holy Spirit provoked His Spirit within Him. The title of today's message is, Don't Go Therefore versus Go Therefore Christianity. Don't Go Therefore versus Go Therefore Christianity. And I wrote an article two years ago of this title, I must preach this. It must be preached, it must be on sermon audio, and God demands it. When the Lord interrupts my life and my day, as he did yesterday, in a unique way, I try to pay attention. I try to respond according to his will. Many years ago, I was attending Multnomah Bible College, and this is an aside. But Multnomah Bible College, in my first year there, decided to change their policy and bring women into their pastoral major to train women to be pastors. They had never done it before. At the same time, they decided to allow a professor to teach that sexist males had bound up God's word for 2,000 years and kept women from being pastors. And he rewrote the scriptures, the audacity. He rewrote the word of God to justify his teaching that sexist males had bound up the Word of God to keep women out of the pastorate. I was contending against both of these errors, one more serious than the other, to actually go to the extent of rewriting Scripture against 2,000 years of translation history in every known language that is bold and audacious. And the last thing I wanted to do in Bible college was fight the college. I wanted to submit. I wanted to sit. I wanted to receive the word of God. Thus saith the Lord from the professor. So that then I might be trained and equipped to go out and say, thus saith the Lord and preach the word. But God ordained that I would go to Bible college to defend the word of God. And I was moving toward having to take a stand at that college. I had talked to the president. I had talked to the dean of the faculty repeatedly on these matters. I had talked to the professor teaching these things on this matter directly, and yet they persisted to defy the word of God. And then I went to chapel, and they had a woman preaching in the chapel. And if I wanted to graduate at this Bible college, Multnomah Bible College, now university, you must attend the chapels or you'll not graduate. And so I submitted to their university rules rather than the word of God, which is wrong. And I sat there, although I did not participate. I studied for my classes that were yet to come, a midterm I think it was, throughout her preaching. And at the end of that chapel, the dean of women came and found me out of thousands of students, came and found me and wanted to know my name because I had not participated in chapel. I had been reading and studying. And I gave her my name. And I, with kindness, brought correction to her and said, ma'am, that woman is blaspheming the word of God and I shouldn't have even stayed at all. And now you've come to correct me as a woman who was my age, <laughs> I was a married man, an adult with children going to Bible college. She came to correct me for defying the university and defying the preaching of the woman as she blasphemes the word of God. And so I gave her my name and I told her I'd be talking to the president about this matter. And that's when the real battle began to try to win this university back to submission to Jesus Christ as Lord out of love for Christ, and out of love for all the students they were teaching to defy Christ. Yesterday was a similar experience. 
Yesterday, it was my great joy to go forth with two of your brothers and to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ in downtown Portland. And we are there and before God and men with a hundred people on the right and a hundred or more people on the left, preaching the glory of Christ in downtown Portland, preaching his law that it might be a tutor to bring men to Christ to be justified by faith, preaching the gospel for it's the power of God and the salvation. Hundreds of people are hearing the life-saving word of God because faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. And two young ladies in their 20s step up and they begin to contend against the public preaching of God's word. You're doing it wrong. You're offending people. This doesn't work. They don't care how much you know until they know how much you care, that kind of thing. Friendship evangelism. This isn't relational enough. Jesus wouldn't do it this way. All of that. And they wanted me to stop preaching to talk to them. Joe was there at my side. He said, no, he's going to keep preaching, but I'll talk to you. And he engaged them, I think, for 30 minutes or more. It was highly distracting. <laughs> right there in my ears, I'm preaching. And on my left is this demoniac yelling at me and throwing Slurpee on me that he pulled out of the garbage. Highly distracting. But the gospel kept going forth, praise God. But this conversation went on and on. And Joe brought Scripture, graciously, kindly, brought Scripture to bear upon their folly, their foolishness, and their audacity. Don't miss that. These young women... Stepped up to two men twice their age. Sorry, Joe, you're getting older, brother. Two men twice their age to say you're doing it wrong. Stop that. In the midst of the conversation, they said, look, we're reformed just like you. And I'm having to ignore this conversation the whole time I'm preaching. Frustrating. But after preaching for about an hour, I finished up. And I engaged them as well. And Tragically, the word of God had no sway on them. All of Joe's arguments failed to move them. They attempted to bring one scripture and one scripture only, and they had to twist it terribly like Satan. Satan twists scripture. They had to twist it like Satan, who was audacious enough to come to Jesus, right? Remember that? Satan came to Jesus and twisted scripture. They said in Matthew 6, Jesus said, you shouldn't stand on the street corner and pray. Well, that's true. He said you shouldn't stand on the street corner and pray if you're doing it to look good in the eyes of men, to look spiritual in the eyes of men. If it's pride driving you to stand on the street corner and pray so that men will see how spiritual you are, yes, the Lord Jesus condemns that. And I asked her, are you judging me with that scripture? And these women have been so trained to not judge. Oh, no, no, no. No, wait, you were judging me. And I wanted, I wanted to engage it. I wanted to point out, you're judging me with that scripture. Now let's consider what that scripture really means. One, is that a condemnation of publicly preaching the gospel? No. Then what is it? It's a condemnation of going about any religious duty for the applause of men to boost your pride or your influence amongst men. If you do anything in the name of God for the applause of men, it is wrong. It is sin. And it will only bring correction if you're an actual Christian, chastening from your father and judgment if you're not. And so they had no scripture to stand on. They had no respect or submission to scripture that was graciously brought to them. And they claimed to be reformed just like us but you're doing it wrong. At the end of our conversation, or toward the end, a man came from the crowd. Remember, I'd been preaching for about an hour. I had stopped. I'm engaging the women now. We're still standing in the middle of the street. This man comes out of the crowd. And he says, I want you to know, and he comes up between these young ladies and Joe and I, I want you to know, I was listening. And there were others listening. And it, oh, it's such a blessing. Thank you for being here. Do you suppose the young women heard that man? Do you suppose that that man's testimony, his excited, joyful testimony, was a compelling argument for them? It was not. If they will not hear the scriptures, they will not hear this man's joyful 
declaration of thanks either. They are part of the vast, don't go therefore, Christian church. And they have been well trained. Well trained to ignore the Lord Jesus Christ. Well trained to reject the Great Commission. Well trained to trample it beneath their feet. Well trained to the point of being so convicted and so convinced that they're willing to step up to men twice their age in the middle of authoritatively preaching the word to say, stop, you're doing it wrong. Again, the title of the message, don't go therefore versus go therefore Christianity. What Christianity did the Lord Jesus Christ establish in the earth after his death, burial, and glorious resurrection? Don't go therefore Christianity. Did he say, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Don't go therefore. But somehow, relationally, after you've proven how much you care, tell them how much you know about me. Is that what he said? No, he said, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded, and lo, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. So he who has all authority commands us beneath his authority to go to all nations and make them disciples. How? By preaching the word. Elsewhere, Luke's gospel, he says, go and preach repentance to the nations and remission of sins. Repentance and remission of the sins. Before he suffered, died, rose again and gave his great commission, he himself went to all of Israel preaching everywhere to everyone in the wilderness and the towns and in between. Then, after his disciples had followed him around for some time observing this, he sent them out two by two to preach repentance. After he ascended on high, his disciples did what? Waited. Because he said, wait for the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes, you shall be my witnesses. And when they received the Holy Spirit, what did they do? Throughout the entire New Testament, they went everywhere preaching the glory of Jesus Christ and his gospel, turning the world upside down. That's what Acts says. Filling Jerusalem with their doctrine. That's what the book of Acts says. That is the New Testament. Go back to the Old Testament. What do you find? God's prophets preaching all over the earth in the open air. Preaching primarily repentance. And if not repentance, judgment. Calling sinners to repent. Charles Spurgeon said something to this effect. As to whether or not open air preaching is right or not, one does not have to prove. What must be proven is whether or not it's right to preach in a pulpit. Because when you go to the scriptures, you don't actually find pulpit preaching. You find open air preaching from Genesis to Revelation. Am I condemning pulpit preaching? By no means. I am condemning the idea that the church should chain the word of God to the pulpit and the pastor to the pulpit. Rather, that chain should be cut. In fact, that chain must be cut. And the word of God must be unleashed again on mankind wherever they are found. Jesus did not say, Go, therefore, plant churches and invite everyone and keep the door open. Jesus said, go, therefore, and make disciples. And when they're disciples, they will come and beat down the door, open or not. They want to come fellowship. They want to come worship. They want to come learn of God. 
But you go. You find perishing sinners and you preach the word of God to them. Pride. Pride. The don't go there for pastors if they should listen to this message to this minute point in the sermon will be thinking this man is proud. And they will excuse their don't go there for disobedience to the Great Commission. They will excuse their false teaching. They will excuse their congregants who step up in the middle of the street to tell gospel preachers they should stop by saying, this is just pride speaking. It's just pride. And that's interesting. He who defies Jesus is the proud man. He who pleads, begs, exhorts, corrects, and even rebukes the defiance of Jesus is the obedient. But when we become so enamored with our false teaching, when we become so caught up in a long tradition of false teaching, and don't go there for Christianity, is a long, respected, well-established doctrine that has invaded Christ's church. What we need is biblical clarity, and biblical clarity gives biblical certitude, strength, courage to say, hey, you're doing it wrong. Those young ladies, those 20-something-year-old young ladies have certitude. They have clarity in their minds. They have strength and courage to step up to men in the light of day and say, you're doing it wrong. I'm stepping up in the light of day to my fellow pastors and churches, and I'm saying you're doing it wrong. And you're creating rebellious disciples who are doing it wrong. And you're destroying the United States of America, Great Britain, and the Western world as Christianity ebbs from the face of the earth, as you are now satisfied just to try to keep your doors open, refusing to go, therefore, and subdue the savages with the word of God. Yes, the savages. And I'm not talking about indigenous Americans. I'm talking about red, yellow, black, and white Americans. Savage in their sin. Savage in their hatred of God. I'm talking about every man, woman, and child until they repent and confess Christ as Lord. We are given over to savagery, and our savagery is it's coming out. Is it not? Have you not looked around? I mean, <laughs> you used to have to work a little bit to find debauchery in our society. You had to go to certain aisles in the Certain stores, you had to go to certain sections of town. Now all you have to do is turn on a cartoon channel. Now all you have to do is walk in the front door of Target. And they're teaching our children transgenderism, homosexuality, lesbianism. They're teaching our children to defy their creator, to deny their created gender, and to mutilate their bodies. The local indoctrination centers, the local satanic indoctrination centers you call elementary schools, preschools, middle schools, and high schools, and colleges, they're not teaching them reading, writing, and arithmetic. They're teaching them to blaspheme God and rebel against Him in the most fundamental way, to deny their own gender, or even that there is gender. I've got young high school kids standing on the street, giving me what for, acting like I'm a lunatic because I say there is such a thing called gender, not God, gender. They mock and scoff as if there's a madman standing there because I say, surely you'll admit you're a boy, right? And she's a girl. And they Laugh. Oh, there is pride afoot. Yes. Those who are so arrogant, they will defy the Lord Jesus Christ's standing command. His last 
command before he ascended to sit on high. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Go and preach repentance to all nations. Well, that is a gross pride. And that pride is damning our nation. That pride is destroying what is known as the Western world. And what made the Western world the Western world? The biblical worldview, the gospel of Jesus Christ that it was built upon. And now we're losing that biblical foundation. We're losing that biblical worldview. And we're embracing literally insanity. Literally insanity. Men are taking women's... It's, it's just shocking. It's shocking how stupid sin makes us. Sin makes us stupid. We're now... God-hating men and women are celebrating the men who claim to be women who took their spot on the podium at the track meet, at the swim meet. God-hating men and women are so committed to their personal rebellion against God that they're willing to give up their bathroom stall and their shower stall to a man pretending to be a woman. Brothers and sisters, This God-hating culture is criminalizing God himself. They're criminalizing the word of God. They're criminalizing Christians who proclaim the word of God. They're criminalizing parents who teach their children the word of God because the word of God holds their sexual immorality in check. The word of God exposes their sexual sin and it it exposes their murder of the unborn and therefore they hate the God who exposes their sin and convicts them. They hate the God who condemns their sin and would condemn them to hell for their sin so they hate us. Yesterday, I was preaching the word of God. I just started. I just started. My name is Chuck O'Neill. I'm blessed to be the pastor of the Portland 116 Bible Church. I'm here today to preach to you the word of God, the Bible. Do you know what the Bible is? So I start, you know, kind of basic. Do you know what the Bible is? It is the Word of God, inspired, inerrant, preserved, authoritative. The Bible says about the Bible that it's able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. I get that far. And a woman cries out of the crowd. First cry, she says, abortion rights. Did I mention abortion? Did I mention sex? Did I mention politics? No. Why does she cry out abortion rights? Because she knows that God condemns the murder of the unborn. She knows God condemns her sexually immoral lifestyle and the murder of the unborn that is the result of that. 1.3 billion babies globally since 1980. And our culture is united in a vast sexual revolution against God. An unhinged sexual revolution. And thus you hold up the Bible and they cry out, abortion, abortion. And that happened all day yesterday. And every time then I would address it. And when the men cried out, abortion, abortion, I shamed them. Oh yes, you support abortion because you want to use women, abuse them, and then take them to the abortion clinic to cover up your sin. As a rule, that shut them down. Oh, found out. Can't deny it. Brothers and sisters, we need a revival of humility and obedience beneath the Lord Jesus Christ and his standing great commission command, go therefore. We need a revival of go therefore Christianity. We can't be satisfied to try to keep our doors open. They won't stay open. We can't be satisfied just to try to raise up our our little Christian family. They're going to come for you. You think they're going to keep letting you teach your children at home about the God they hate and about God's moral standards that they hate? You think they're going to let your grandchildren be taught at home? No, no. They are going to take your children and your grandchildren to their indoctrination centers where they will teach them to hate God and mutilate their bodies. 1 Timothy 1.15 says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the central issue. That's what it's all about. He came into the world to save sinners. He created the cosmos. He created our solar system. He created 
planet Earth so that he could come into the world and suffer on a tree for sinners. That's what it's all about. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. What are we going to do about it? Say, don't go there for. If I'd had longer to talk to the women, and they didn't want to talk to me, once I stopped preaching, they, they wanted to leave. But I would have asked them things like, how are you reaching, let's say, a thousand people? You claim to be reformed. What does that mean? They claim to believe in God's sovereignty and salvation. What does that mean? They claim, technically, to believe that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. That the scriptures make men and women wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. They claim to believe that as, quote, reformed Christians, but they don't believe it at all. Otherwise, they'd be nothing but excited. Well over a thousand people heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Heard the word of God. And because we know that God is sovereign in salvation, we know that word will not return void. It will accomplish what God pleases. It will perform that for which God sent it. That all of his elect in God's time will come under conviction, will repent, and will confess Christ as Lord. That word will have its way in them. It is a holy, omnipotent seed that God has placed in their heart. And their heart in God's time will become good soil. And that seed will spring up to life and life abundant in Jesus Christ. They know, as reformed people, that sinners are dead in sin and trespass. And you can't make a sinner who is dead in sin and trespass deader. I love that theological term, deader. You can't make a sinner deader than they are. They're not mostly dead. That's good comedy. Real theology, reformed theology, biblical theology, teaches us that we're dead in sin and trespass. And they profess to believe that, but they, they don't really. Because they're so worried about emotions and relationship. And if the emotions aren't right and the relationships aren't right, you're going to just push people away. Here's the thing. You can't push a dead man away. They're as far as they're getting. They're already dead. You can't make them deader. They're dead in sin and trespass. And the only thing that's going to revive them is actually the power of the Holy Spirit regenerating them. And when the Holy Spirit regenerates them, suddenly they breathe their first breath. Suddenly they see the glory of God and all His holiness. And they learn the beginning of wisdom, which is the fear of God. And they flee from sin, death, and hell to Jesus Christ in faith because they see Jesus now not as foolishness and His gospel now not as foolishness, 1 Corinthians 1, but as the wisdom of God. And their only hope and they claim to believe all these things, but they hate the public preaching of God's word. And hear me, I'm not just picking on these two young women. This has been the consistent response of the so-called reformed Calvinistic evangelical church to the public proclamation of the gospel for decades. Praise God for the few exceptions, but they are few. The don't go therefore Christian church is vast. And they must repent of their pride, of their defiance of the Lord Jesus Christ, and humble themselves before him and learn by the grace of God to go, therefore, and preach repentance to all nations, beginning with our own. The loveless spirit of Jonah is upon much of the visible church today. They see their modern-day Nineveh, the United States of America, Great Britain, other Western nations, under the judgment of God, and heap further condemnation upon it zealously while refusing to go, therefore, and call them to repentance and saving faith in Christ. May God fill us with His Spirit and the chief fruit of the Spirit, love, May that love compel us to actually obey Christ by going, therefore, to love our perishing neighbors with zealous preaching of God's law and gospel everywhere to everyone. If we remain apathetic, silent, and disobedient, God will send a great fish of persecution to swallow us and spit us up on the beach of our Nineveh, just as he did with Jonah of old. 
If we refuse to learn from Jonah and persist in our self-loving indifference, demanding our father's chastening rod like insolent children, make no mistake, our sovereign God will have his glory in the redemption of sinners through smelly, broken fish spit. That's what we will be. And that's what we're on our way to becoming. Smelly, broken fish spit. Because the heart of Jonah is the rule. The spirit of Jonah is the rule in today's church. We look outside and we see those Ninevites. Boy, they are indeed savages. They are disgusting. They are evil. They are God-haters. And we say it in a judgmental spirit. Earlier you heard me saying it. I want you to understand, there's making a right judgment, same words, but it's a right judgment out of an honest assessment and out of compassion to say that's savagery and they're given over to savage behavior, thus they're savages perishing in their sins. And then there's, oh, they're just a bunch of savages. They're Ninevites. They're homosexuals. They're sodomites. They're Ninevites. They're dying in their sins. They're homosexuals. They're dying in their sins. They're transvestites. Men pretending to be women. Women pretending to be men. Their sin has made them mad. They're dying in their sins. See, it's all the heart behind it. We must make right judgments and warn people of the coming judgment out of a right heart filled with love for God and love for perishing sinners. But hear me, don't miss this. Hear me. Jonah did not have a right heart. So God had a great fish swallow him and that great fish spit him up on the right beach. And Jonah, against his will, showed up in Nineveh and preached, no doubt, a terrible message. Nevertheless, the message was true. God is holy. You're sinners. His judgment's coming for you. And because God is sovereign in salvation, even a hard-hearted preacher with a message poorly preached resulted in national repentance. The salvation of an entire city-state. Exemplifying the reality that, yes, God is sovereign in salvation and that faith does come by hearing and hearing the word of God even when the messenger has a hard and wicked heart. Now, some pastors would respond, well, it's not my job. My job is just to feed the sheep. Feed the sheep to what end? Why feed the sheep? There's a lot of reasons to feed the sheep. There's a lot of reasons to preach the word, to edify the body of Christ. But what's the main thing? Let me think. Let me think hard. Oh, yeah. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. What's the main thing? Oh, yeah. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. That's the main thing. So if I fail to equip you in that, I have failed. Oh, I've I've taught you how to be biblical men and biblical... Husbands and biblical fathers and biblical women and biblical mothers and a good biblical citizen and whatnot. But hear me, if I don't teach you how to be a biblical evangelist, how to be a biblical messenger of the Lord Jesus Christ, I have failed as a pastor. I have missed the main thing. And why would pastors fail in that? Well, one, sadly, because they've been trained in their seminaries to fail in that. This is a systemic failure. It's a systemic Don't go there for false teaching. It is deep and wide. It's been long sustained by our seminaries and Bible colleges. But you will not find don't go there for Christianity in the Bible. In the Old Testament, you find the theocracy of Israel commanded to conquer the nations and subdue them to Yahweh God. In the New Testament, you find the Christian church called to conquer the nations and bring them into submission to Yahweh God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, through the proclamation of the gospel, to go, therefore. There are hundreds of pastors in Portland, Oregon, America's most atheist city, 
Do you know how many of them I bumped into while ministering the gospel at the abortion clinic, at parades, in the city square, at the riverfront, or anywhere else? Not one. Not ever. In over 20 years of pastoral ministry. If you took a survey in all of America's cities, you would find it's much the same. As a rule, pastors won't obey the Bible, won't obey the Great Commission, and won't do the work of an evangelist. That's a quote from 2 Timothy chapter 4. In the manner the Lord Jesus commanded and so clearly exemplified personally and through his apostles on the inspired, inerrant, and authoritative pages of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and the rest of the New Testament. What's worse is that they not only won't do it, they won't teach it. They won't support it, and they often outright condemn biblical evangelism as detrimental to souls and the good reputation of the local church. You're going to give us a bad reputation. I've shared the story a few times of how on the way back from Shepherd's Conference, we stopped for gas, and I locked the keys in the car. And we had a group of, I don't know, 10 or 12 men and two different car loads. And, and so we were waiting for a man, a professional, to come and unlock the car and get us back on the road. And we're going to have an hour or two on, on hand. So we figured we're going to redeem the time. We're at this really large gas station in the middle of nowhere in California, and so we just begin to hand out gospel tracts and engage people in conversation. Great conversation going on here, great conversation going on there, great conversation going on over there. It was beautiful. It was very well received. And a carload of men pulls up, and I go up and give them a tract and engage them with a smile, and they begin to correct and rebuke me. A carload of pastors coming back from the Shepherds Conference just like those two young women yesterday. You're doing it wrong. You can't just walk up to people and talk to them about heaven and hell and Jesus Christ. That's only going to push people away. And they began to twist Scripture even better than those two young ladies. I mean, they're just disciples. These are the masters. They have worked long and hard to twist Scripture to justify their defiance of the Lord Jesus Christ. And praise God, I was able to stand and contend graciously with Holy Scripture. And if God is pleased to give them eyes to see, they'll find the Scriptures were very, very clear. There's not an argument here. Not really, not in the light of day. I'd be happy to sit down with any pastor, anywhere, anytime, no matter how big his church is, no matter how many letters he has after his name, call him reverend, doctor, whatever, I don't care. It's not about your letters or the school you attended. It's about thus saith the Lord. It's about he who has all authority in heaven and earth and whether or not you are going to obey it or defy it. Those men are what I call don't go therefore pastors. They have exchanged Christ's great commission command for the self-loving goals of staying popular, staying prosperous, and staying safe in a world that hates God, hates his law, and hates his gospel. They may give lip service to the Great Commission or the plight of perishing sinners, but they've chosen love of self over love of God and love of neighbor and defiantly refuse to die to self and take up the cross, forsaking their cherished popularity, prosperity, and safety. They are men who have not heard these precious words and this Sober warning from the Lord Jesus, who said in Luke 6.22, Blessed are you when men hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich! For you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. And woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. For so did their fathers to the false prophets who cried, Peace, peace before you. A sober warning from the Lord Jesus. 
Now, what's the result of this long-term, don't go there for Christianity? What's the result of this long-term, don't go there for pastoral defiance of Jesus Christ's Great Commission command in America? The result is the abandonment of God-centered, Bible-driven ministry and the adoption of man-centered, seeker-centered, pragmatism-driven ministry and the rebellious deconstructing and reimagining of the church, preaching, evangelism, missions, heaven, hell, the gospel, and God himself. The result is the conscious rejection of the one true God, the God of the Bible, the only God there is. The result is the decline and widespread rejection of biblical Christianity as antiquated, ugly, hateful superstition. The result is the rise of professing Christians, seminary professors, and pastors who sympathize with Christopher Hitchens' literary axe grindings against God and are apt to say and teach Things that sound like quotes from Hitchens' book, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. What do I mean? Well, I mean, our local esteemed Western seminary has a professor that teaches that hell is not the wrath of God upon sinners. Hell is not a lake of fire. Hell is Is God respecting men's autonomy and allowing them to shut God out? Hell is locked from the inside. He goes further because he will not allow God to be a just judge who is angry with the wicked every day, quote, unquote, Psalm 711. Because he will not allow God to be a God who casts men into the lake of fire. What men? Revelation 21.8 but the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall be cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. Because he will not allow God, and a vast number like him, will not allow God to send people to hell where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, where the worm does not die and the flame is not quenched. Those are the words of the Lord Jesus. He has recreated hell, recrafted it to make it friendlier and nicer, where God respects man's autonomy, and lets man lock God out. Hell is locked from the inside. But then he goes a step further, because he cannot allow God to be a just judge and pour wrath upon sinners. He can't allow God to be a just judge and pour wrath even upon Jesus. And so the cross is not Jesus taking the wrath of the Almighty, propitiating on their behalf. It is not Jesus to tell us die, finishing the payment for sin. Eternity's hell in six hours, one Friday, 2,000 years ago, taken upon himself because he's fully and eternally God. He could take eternity's hell in those six hours. No, 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 it's not that. It's not that at all. And so he has another gospel as well as another hell. The result of this don't go there for Christianity and the don't go there for pastors' false teaching is the rise and near universal acceptance of the faith system and worldview of atheism under the guise of naturalism, materialism, Big Bang cosmology and evolution in schools, universities, seminaries, churches, and society as a whole. The result is the rise and absurd promotion of the oppressive, cruel, misogynist, murderous, jihadi, terrorism-inspiring, soul-damning false religion of Islam is a beautiful and peaceful religion. The result is the rise of rampant immodesty, unbridled lust, sexual immorality, and the accompanying mass genocide of millions of unborn babies in America's abortion clinics. The result is the rise and globally enforced celebration of radical homosexual perversion and gender rebellion in which you are commanded to don a purple shirt, wave a rainbow flag, bend your knee, and gleefully confess the glory of Sodom and Gomorrah with an obligatory lisp, or be labeled, ridiculed, marginalized, and canceled as a disgusting homophobic hater worthy of only derision and destruction. The result is the rise of a false woke church with false woke teachers, with a false woke gospel, and false woke converts who exchange the moral commands of God for the immorality of Satan. The result 
is churches filled with unrepentant Democrats who support and vote for the advancement of everything God hates, calling evil good and good evil while they pretend to love God and Jesus too. The result is the Beaverton Foursquare, one of the largest churches in the greater Portland area, just up the road from our church, full of thousands of people this morning, sitting under a pastor who baptizes homosexuals and lesbians who are unrepentant, still so-called married to another man, married to another woman, unrepentant. He baptizes them as brothers and sisters in Christ and puts them to work in ministry. That's the result. How has this happened? Those don't go there for pastors have the same Bible you and I have. They have the same four Gospels that contain the Great Commission example and commands. They have the same book of Acts that records the history of Christ's church, obeying Christ, going everywhere, preaching to everyone, suffering, dying, filling their cities with the doctrine of Christ, filling the Athenian square with the gospel of Christ, and turning the world upside down for the glory of Christ and the redemption of sinners. They have Matthew 28, 18 through 20 in their Bibles, and we've already spoke much of it. They have the Great Commission. It's in their Bibles. They will often give lip service to it, but hear me, they don't go there for churches and that don't go therefore pastors have made the great commission to be the great option or made it to be something entirely else every scripture joe brought to bear on these don't go therefore disciples who stood up with certitude and strength and courage to correct us every scripture he brought to bear upon them they would twist rip it out of its context and say well you see you just need to be relational you just that's friendship what? When I got engaged in the conversation, the young lady tried to bring up Acts 2. And you see, in Acts 2, they were fellowshipping and breaking bread. I said, yes, indeed they were. But what's the context? It was after the Holy Spirit-empowered preaching in unknown languages of the glories of God. It was after they heard the preaching and said, what must we do to be saved? And then they went on after they broke bread and fellowship with these new converts converted by the preaching of God's word. Then they went on to go and preach everywhere and to suffer and die for it. Oh, no, no, we don't want to talk about that. Oh, oh we're done here. We're out. I pity those young ladies. They have zeal. They have courage. They're faithful disciples of false reformed teachers. And they're unleashing their disciples on our nation and destroying it. They are a blight and a curse upon our nation and the nations of the earth. You can get everything right, but if you trample the Great Commission beneath your unholy feet, you will not hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You have failed. Two days ago, a man on one of the world's most faithful evangelistic ministry staffs put out a blurb on social media. And he said this, the only thing that will save America is the rapture and the return of Jesus Christ. That is eschatological madness. That is eschatology subjugating soteriology. That is eschatology taking the Great Commission and throwing it in the burn bin. And hear me, if that's your eschatology and you're using it to throw the Great Commission in the burn bin, you'd be far better off taking your eschatology wrong or right and throwing it in the burn bin. Because here's what you can be confident of. Your end times doctrine, eschatology, will become very clear when the end comes. Whether... You were right or wrong, that will become very, very clear. What we can be certain of, what the Lord made absolutely clear, is what is the gospel and what is our mission. Our mission is not to say, oh well, the world's going to hell. Nothing to do here until Jesus returns. We'd best go hide. We'd best retreat we'd best build higher fences around our church properties. The day you have to build a fence around your church property 
is a day you know you've been failing year after year after year to go there for and make disciples. So they have Matthew 28, 18 through 20 in their Bibles, where Jesus says all authority has been given to him in heaven and earth, where Jesus commands us, therefore, to go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all things that he has commanded, where he says that he'll be with us in that great commission mission, even to the end of the age. They have that final standing command of the captain of our salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ. They have Mark 8, 34 in their Bibles. When he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the son of man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. Those are sober words. And they have them in their Bibles. And somehow they manage to teach them and rip them out of context and abuse them. They have Luke 24, 47 in their Bibles. Repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name to all nations. They have Acts 1.8 in their Bibles, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. They have Acts 2.40 in their Bibles with many other words. He testified and exhorted them saying, be saved from this, hear this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. They have Acts 4.18 through 20 in their Bibles. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge. But we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Hear me. I have more Christians telling me to stop preaching the gospel publicly than non-believers. I have far more reformed pastors, evangelical pastors, telling me to stop preaching the gospel publicly than I do government officials. And my answer to them is the same answer that Peter gave, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge. They have Acts 4.29 in their Bibles. Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. And again, the context. Where do they mean? In the pulpit. No, publicly. Everywhere. They have Acts 17.16 in their Bibles. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him. And when he saw that the city was given over to idols, therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him and some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. Paul, don't you know? They don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Go make friends, Paul. Hand out sandwiches. Stop preaching. These reformed pastors' disciples would show up, sweet, kind, and smiling, to help Paul out. We're reformed, Paul. We follow your doctrine. We believe Romans 9. But hey, we don't believe Romans 10. Sit down and shut up. Apostle Paul, audacious, zealous, foolishness, well-trained, don't-go-therefore disciples. They have Acts 17, 30-31 in their Bibles. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he's appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given us assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. 
Oh, that's not nice, Paul. Those two Reformed disciples who said, you're doing it wrong, stop preaching, they also said, you can't, you can't point out sin. You don't talk about sin with non-believers. You only deal with sin with believers. You don't call them to repent. You don't warn them of judgment. You don't talk about hell. That only offends them and pushes them away. Okay, oh, Reformed disciples who believe in the sovereignty of God that's kind of central to Reformed doctrine, they don't believe it at all. They have Acts 20, 20 through 21 in their Bibles. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Hear me. The proud and arrogant men are the men who condemn the ministry that the Apostle Paul just described. I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also Greeks in that worldview that that's everybody, Jews and the rest of the nations, testifying to Jews and also the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. They have Romans 1.16 in their Bibles. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. And they are bold to have conferences, audacious conferences, centered around Romans 1.16. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, where they do not tell the pastors to then go, therefore, and be unashamed of the gospel of Christ and preach it to everyone everywhere. Stand in your city center. Turn your world upside down. Fill your city with the gospel of Christ. It is shameful. Our refusal to submit to Christ and His great commission is shameful. It is bold rebellion. It is pride. We know better than God how to reach the world. We know better than Jesus how to see sinners come to repentance and faith. It's certainly not by doing what Jesus did. It's certainly not by doing what Jesus trained his disciples to do. It's certainly not by doing what the early church did to turn the world upside down, quote, unquote, acts. That'll never work. Hear me, that's Satan in your ear or in your pulpit. That'll never work. That was Satan's message from those two well-meaning, bold, zealous disciples of don't go there for Christianity. That'll never work. Oh, by the way, how is what they are doing working? How is chaining the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, to the pulpit working? Is Christianity advancing in the world or ebbing away? Is the light of Christ spreading everywhere or is it getting dark? How's that working for you? How about this? One answer. Just one scripture. If I was just to give one one scripture to answer this foolishness, this rebellion, what would it be? Romans 10, 14 to 17. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how should they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how should they hear without a preacher? And how should they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring because they went, because they obeyed Jesus' command to go, therefore, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. If you claim to believe Romans 9, but don't believe Romans 10, just sit quietly in your theological, hypocritical shame. Don't ever step up to me on the street and tell me you're reformed. We need revival in the church, brothers and sisters. We need a vast revival. The 
Systemic, don't go there for false teaching is everywhere. And thus, our neighbors are perishing in their sins. And our nations are being given over to doctrines of demons. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word and the power thereof. I pray, Father, you use this message in each of our lives, my life, each of these men's lives, our dear precious ladies, even our children, Father, and far beyond these walls. Use it to edify your church, to bless other pastors. Father, may they be humbled beneath your word, humbled beneath the Lord Jesus Christ. We confess there is no good thing in us. There is no good thing in me except by your grace except by the power of your Holy Spirit. I'm not better than these brother pastors. It is your grace alone that has granted me submission to the Lordship of Christ and his clear teaching. May you grant them the same grace, Lord, that we would become the great army we are meant to be, the army of Christ, soldiers of the cross, marching us to war, wielding the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, the only effectual, the only all-powerful, the only omnipotent means that you have given us to bring sinners to repentance and faith in Christ, as faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. And all of God's saints said, Amen.